This episode, I was really excited to have painter Anne Tebby in my clutches to talk about her 2022 exhibition, Cooler by the Lake, at Tibor Denage Gallery in New York. And the 10 highly detailed gouache, oil, and collage works that she's included in the show that depict interiors and exteriors from her neighborhood in Hyde Park, Chicago. A few of the things we talked about were the condensed space in Indian miniature paintings and the dollhouse in art. We also spoke about her past project of recreating friends' homes from photos found on Facebook. Also, being an artist parent, and of course, the amazing tradition of Chicago artists. I hope you'll like listening as much as I love talking with Anne. Let's find out why it's cooler by the lake. You are listening to Pep Talks for Artists, a podcast offering small words of encouragement to all those shuffling along the artist's road. I'm your host, Amy Toledo. Excited to speak to an artist that I met by chance uh, this October at Bushwick Open Studios, and it's painter Ann Tebby. And I've been a fan of her work for many years, and so I jumped at the chance to see if I could get her on Peps in conjunction with her new show at T Bordenage. So before we get started, I just want to give a quick bio in case you're not familiar with Ann's work and a few deets about her show. Ann Tebby is a painter who is originally from Cincinnati, but lives and works in Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago. She works in gouache, collage, and oil on panel, and is currently having a solo show at T Bordenage in New York City at 11 Rivington Street through January 27th, which is a Thursday. Her show is titled Cooler by the Lake and features 10 paintings ranging from 35 by 35 inches to 18 by 22 inches. And they show moments and places in her neighborhood near the shore of Lake Michigan. Her paintings and collage paintings depict flattened space and a combo of kind of like bird's eye and straight on perspectives with intense patterning and fine detail. And she often depicts room interiors, but also tackles outdoor moments like her painting of a large bush and a do not enter sign titled Obama's house, as Obama once called Hyde Park his home too. Uh, So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Anne Tebby. Hi, Anne. Hi. Welcome to Pep Talks. Well, thanks for inviting me. This this will be fun. I wanted to just get started and ask you if you wouldn't mind. I've just done a quick description of your work, but I'd love to hear in your own words how you would describe the the body of work you're showing at T. Bordenage right now. Well, yeah, I, lo- I loved your description. Um, I mean, similar to what you said, uh, just a little background. So my work prior to this show 
was predominantly or I mean, I guess it was predominantly uh, domestic interiors. So I usually work from memory. Uh, I also work from photographs. Sometimes I work solely from one or I combine the two. So this show, I think like a lot of artists who in this moment are, were had a lot of time, I think, to kind of quietly think about uh, probably the work they made in the past. And then I actually, during the pandemic, had this show coming up and the the in 2020 i had ideas about what i was going to do for this show and because of the situation with the with iso with isolating and staying home so much and i do have a family i sort of shifted gears and i realized that i instead of doing what i normally do which is come up with a conceptual idea for a, a framework around a body of work and um, i usually have it all planned out before i start the show and I, I have, and then I kind of work from there. This show, I decided I was going to let evolve a little more spontaneously. And I used the work that I made in the summer of 2020, which I allowed myself to get more autobiographical, I guess, even just more closer to the present, closer to who I am now versus in my previous body's work, I was always looking backward. So that's how this show came about. And then, you know, then once I got into it, I started realizing that I am finally really settled in my life and I have a place, Hyde Park, the neighborhood in Chicago where I live that I feel like is home versus looking back at my childhood home where I grew up with my parents. And then prior to this, I sort of lived a more you know transient life as an artist where I lived in New York. I spent some time in Berlin. I went to grad school. So this, this show really is about being middle-aged, being... Um, you know, in my mid-career, I think, as an artist and allowing myself to really reflect on how that, how that could be depicted in my work. So. Yeah. I love how the work in the show specifically is your neighborhood that you live in. That seems incredibly personal and autobiographical. I, I know some of your paintings I've read, I was reading like, uh, is the cafe you go to or places do you know that you see every day? Well, the, so the, what's funny about Hyde Park is so it's not a neighborhood I would have chosen to live in. My husband had uh, has a son, my stepson, who's 23, and his ex-wife and son are based here. So I I followed my husband after I met him at, in grad school and made a very sort of, um, you know, a definite decision that I was going to try to make living in Chicago work. But because Eric was living in Hyde Park, which I found out once I moved to Chicago is not a neighborhood that many people um, are living in. Most people are on the west side in Wicker Park or Bucktown or Greektown or, you know, even further west where the, the rents are cheaper and you can get really great industrial studio spaces. I was sort of in this south side neighborhood. What people kind of, my friends, who I, the few that I had here, consider like almost another city. Um, so the, the whole evolution of my being here was um, from feeling like, what the heck? where did I move to really falling in love with a, a place that now feels incredibly familiar and I'm raising my kids here. And what's really become evident is that their childhood is so different from mine. Like I grew up in Southern Ohio. I was, I went to Catholic school K through 12 um, and they're growing up in a very diverse neighborhood in uh, it's, it's Chicago's South side, but it's very near to downtown. So it, it, it has like a very interesting relationship with, the rest of the South Side, because University of Chicago is located here. So the whole the whole idea of the neighborhood 
as I got to know it more and my kids went to public school, it just, I really felt like I had lucked into a place that was giving me so much more than I, I could have um, anticipated in terms of culture, kind of getting out of being really just in a, a really a lack of diversity prior to living here. So, I mean, that's a big part of what I wanted to address in the show is just realizing that I was, I felt very lucky to live in this neighborhood and that the neighborhood became my community. I mean, I think anybody who starts raising kids in, um, when they're in school, you start developing these communities. And so that, that's really what meant a lot of the work is about. And then the Obama, you mentioned Obama. Yeah. Like I think um, maybe if some people aren't familiar with Chicago very much, I think maybe we could talk a little bit more about like the South side of Chicago is known for having very like esteemed African-American politicians homes yeah. like Obama and other politicians that I'm um, spacing on. And also um, Louis Farrakhan. Um, but it's, it's a very diverse. Well, there's Bobby Rush who's now retiring. Yes. <laughs> so, so it's a very um, interesting neighborhood. And then the North side is different than that, I think. That's yes, what I was I reading. mean, it's, it's very divided in terms of its demographics. So North Side is just, everybody knows it's, it's whiter. The South Side and the West Sides are blacker. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't know any of that when I moved here. I didn't have, I didn't know about the esteemed black politicians. I didn't know who Bobby Rush was, of course, um, until he became my representative. So, and then by chance, the, the condo we bought shortly after my daughter was born, is in a community where Obama and Michelle and Sasha and Malia were living when Obama was kind of coming up in Chicago politics before he ran for senator. And then he moved to this larger house, which is the house that's hidden behind those, that clump of evergreens that's really overgrown and became more and more overgrown as he was uh, first president. And then he never came back to Chicago. So the house eventually, I think it now is sold. But for years, it was just protected by the Secret Service and became, you know, and hidden. a giant bush. Yeah, it's like a giant bush is a is a, a giant clump of crooked growing evergreens. So when you drive by the house, or we biked a lot, my daughter did a dance class near there. You would just see this clump of trees, but you would see the Secret Service guys protecting it from this. One. <laughs> They're all protecting the bush. But if you go around and you look on the other side, you could actually sort of see the front of his house. It, it just was very covered by these large evergreens. Um, well, that painting really stood out to me because it's it depicts almost like an intensely detailed clump of bushes that obscure a house and then there's a do not enter sign. And the subject of the painting seems to be like the bush or the clump. And it, it struck me as a rare, one of the rare images you made in the show where you weren't the viewer wasn't given this kind of sneak peek inside. You were kind of kept at bay, only faced with the exterior. Did you intend that, like when you included that in the show, to kind of block the viewer's eye from from that scene? Well, you know, I um, I think over the last five or six years, I've got I've become more interested in this idea of depicting landscape, and I, I became very. Uh, I guess, deeply influenced by Indian miniature painting for a short period where I was really looking at how they make the marks and all the little fussiness. In yeah, the I love, I love that painting. Kind of, of the trees. Oh. So I, I was really like just using that, that, that feeling that I wanted to make these very sort of ornate 
trees. And what happened with the show is I, I did the two interiors. I did sunset and fireworks and I did moths. And those were in the summer. And those are my house or my condo here in Chicago. And then I started thinking more outside. Like I thought, you know, that is when I realized like, you know, because I am so familiar with these, a certain amount of streets here. And I, I, that the Obama's house hidden behind those trees had caught my eye so many times. I actually didn't intend, I, I really didn't see it as a group yet. Like I didn't see moths, sunset and fireworks and Obama, which were the first three that I made as cooler by the lake. sort of the ones that led me to the other paintings. And I, I really just found it very funny that after 10 years and, you know, we have had two different presidents since, and now we have a third, the change in my feeling about Obama, which I still deeply love him, but like just this feeling like when I first moved here, it was 2005 and then he was elected in 2008. And so it was this, there was this like very uplifted feeling about him being president. And then of course we kind of crashed and burned with. Yes, we crashed and burned. (laughs) So it became a metaphor, like Obama left, his house became overgrown. And and we're all trying to figure out how to get out of the wilderness here. Yeah. what happened to Obama's presidency? Like, what? where did we go wrong? Um, yeah, what is the legacy? It just felt like it got thrown in the garbage in a way when Trump took over. Yeah, so I guess that was really, and then it was just this opportunity for me to use this style of mark making that I developed through a couple different shows done in 2017. And even prior to that, where I was really starting to figure out how I could use landscape, create these shapes, and then fill them in with all these marks. Yeah. And I don't use Indian miniatures directly, like I don't, because it's actually too hard. I'm not that good. I, I actually, <laughs> I make a modern version of, I think right, of course. kind of marks that I want to make. <laughs> and, and they're so small too. They're so tiny. Yeah. So, but I really, I really enjoy creating this flattened space of color and then just filling it with you know, and I really mix all the colors and come up with a scheme, you know, so if you look at that painting closely, each clump of evergreens, the shape that's like bending and twisting is kind of a different set of colors. Like I really went over there and observed it and figured out what's dark, what's light. I took a bunch of photos and I mapped out how I was going to mix the colors in order to create this rhythm in the painting. And I have to say, I was just happily surprised. I didn't know if it would work. I mean, that's- It worked well. I love it. Yeah. I love that painting. Um, and for the listeners, in the other paintings you mentioned were um, Sunset and Fireworks and Moths. The Moths painting is a living room with a, a light hanging over. It's like a beam coming down over a table and yeah. there are little moths in the light. And it's it's a rare painting where you really do um, a show of, of light in, in, the, in the composition, usually- um, space is very flat. There's not shadows, and so it was a. It stood out to me as having a light, a, a source of light in the in the work. And then, and then, sunset and fireworks is a window, and you're looking at a sunset, and in, you see an interior table with a few things on it. Um, so it's a very in, interior exterior kind of kind of painting. I wanted to just dive deeper, if we can, into the the space that you create and the Indian miniature idea, because in a weird way, when I see your, the space you make, sometimes like you're looking at it straight on. So maybe like the top is straight on, but then the bottom folds down almost like a union suit, you know, those like pajamas with the flap in the back. And then you unflap the flap and it flaps down. So, and then on the side, things are on their own space too. So you might have like sofas coming 
you know, vertically down on the edges, then you have a straight on scene on the top and then the bottom is all kind of almost like opening like a book. And it's, it's such a fascinating way to compose space to me, uh, something I would never have imagined myself. So I'm fascinated by that. And I love how unexpected it is. I never can predict what you're going to make next. And, um, and it just kind of struck me as like, sort of like a dollhouse, like where you cut away and you see this, this kind of flattened space, but also going back to the, the miniatures, I read this interesting quote by, I don't even know who this is, but I found it like on Wikipedia or something, but his name is Arthur Upham Pope. So let's just assume he's an art historian, <laughs> but he said, um, quote, the entire composition is in a single plane. There are no successive, and this is about Indian miniatures. Um, the entire composition is in a single plane. There are no successive curtains of diminishing light, no converging perspectives that break through the surface. The figures are encompassed by no atmosphere and cast no shadows. Neither the individual figure nor the colors blend or merge and modeling, save for the shallowest and most delicate kind is studiously avoided. And when I read that, I was like, yes, I totally see the connection between how you see space and how you're trying to create space and the um, similarity between the Persian miniaturists. I'm going to have to ask you, uh, Arthur, uh, you can tell me later. Yeah, Arthur Upham Pope. And I'll also put it in the show notes when this becomes podcastified, which is a verb of a red invented. You reading that quote really, um, it really is how I've kind of evolved this this use of perspective because I didn't know about Indian miniatures when I started um, making the paintings that I make. Um, I guess like my first painting in this genre of perspective that I'm using was in 2001, right before I applied to grad school. I, I should say, I, I, th- I mentioned this a lot in my, when I have interviews or talks, I, I did not take painting in undergrad. I did study art, but I was a sculptor. Um, mm. I made only sculpture in undergrad. And then I, I moved to Brooklyn and had a small studio and it just came, I went, I moved from making sculpture to making drawings to sort of trying to make paintings. And that's why my work is water-based because I really started playing around with watercolor and then gouache. And now I use what's called acrylic gouache. It's just very flexible. Yeah, it's very flexible for me. And I didn't really have, I had taken some basic painting with oil and stuff, but I didn't really have the ability with those um with with that kind of paint and acrylic gouache is gouache is hard to me it's the hardest painting i don't know why it worked for me but it did and so i just started really going for it in that way and then i i figured out that i wanted to paint interiors because i like this idea of inventorying objects and i didn't really understand my drive towards it then but i'm also very fixated on class i i really suffered being working class as a kid and always was fixated on what people had in their houses and what made someone look like they had more money or less and that was really it didn't realize it as a younger 20 some artist that that was what was causing me to be drawn to that to interiors Mm. but how it got started i started looking at my parents house i really was looking backwards saying you know, what was in their house, what was in their space. I was always super embarrassed by my mom, who now I'm not embarrassed by at all. I think she has incredibly wonderful taste and I love all the kitsch. And so oh, so she had, she heard, like oh you're saying, um, in your childhood home, she had a lot of kitschy kind of kitsch objects. Or... And just like everything seemed so goofy and mismatched and nothing, 
I remember yelling at her once. Nothing in our house makes sense. Can you believe I would say something? Like that? <laughs> well, no. I think it was like it's it's. She's probably like having the last laugh because your I paintings so. are just a celebration of pattern and mismatched things and home so life. <laughs> I do think that's how. I, I mean, I try to look back and say, why am I? You know, I think all older artists say, why am I on this path? Like, how did I get? And how, why can't I? And why is it so hard to veer off this road? It just, they just steamroll me. I just, there's interior after interior that comes up that I'm like, oh yeah, I got to make that one. It's almost like you're like, almost like bagging things. Like you have to possess it, you know, in order to possess it, you need to, you know, articulate it and create it. And then you, then you kind of understand it and and kind of own it in a way. I mean, in some ways I think maybe too, it related to sculpture. I I mean, I could think about objects. So there were, you know, rooms are filled with objects. I had really, you know, worked in where you look around, you try to look around the object, you figure out where the holes are, what what's going to touch the floor, what's not going to touch the floor, what it's going to be made out of. You know, yeah, there's things. a lot to worry about with sculpture. Oh, yeah, sculpture has a whole other thing. So I think, I think that's what led me down this path. And then the perspective, what I started doing um, when I made the rooms was I wanted to include everything. So I, would, I didn't want to include just like this one view. I wanted to include the back wall, the all the walls on the side, all the furniture. You know, so I, I started bending and twisting things. And originally it was more like looking in a cardboard box and, and there was a little bit of perspective going downward. But I just started getting rid of that and flattening everything and then taking a lot of liberties. Like sometimes for a, a lot of my earlier work, the wall that would bend down from the box is upside down. So there's a lot of upside down things in my earlier paintings. And then I realized like, well, oh, I could just I could just reorient that and make everything go right side up. It doesn't just because in my mind in reality it would be bending down in the box. I don't have to do that in my painting. I can do whatever I want in my painting. Right, right. Um, and so along the way people started saying, "Oh, well you should look at, you know, Indian miniature painting. You should look at non-western art more. You should look at folk art." And and then I discovered, "Oh, I have a lot of I have a lot in common with these art movements." Like I that's where I locate myself, not so much in um, paintings that have, you know, one or two point perspective. Yeah, you're not getting out your ruler and, <laughs> and finding the, the vanishing point, which was like the torture of many an art student <laughs> taking drawing well, I was, one. <laughs> I was thinking I do teach, I have taught a lot of basic drawing classes and I actually, I think there might be something slightly warped about my brain. I, I always struggle with that lesson. I always have to do it the night before. And I've had many demos where I'm up there demonstrating it and I lose track of them. I'm like, um, okay, well, I think this, well, it's supposed to go like this. And the students are kind of chuckling, you know, thinking, <laughs> I don't know if this professor knows what she's talking about. Um, Cause you're like, let's just throw this all out. <laughs> <laughs> this my, is mind not <laughs> my mind doesn't work perspective in, in, in like, you know, standard perspective. So. Um, I think it's so. good. I think you should just feel like, let's do alternative perspectives uh, 101. Well, the funny part is now, now that I've been making this work for, you know, a, a decade and a half, I use a ruler a lot, but I use it to create these very sort of um, uh, carefully laid out architectural plans for my paintings. But none of it is, it's all of it's very flat and everything is kind of oriented to the bottom of the panel. So I paint on panels because gouache works better on a panel. And so the and even when I take photographs now, I find myself wanting to flatten everything. I try to take all my photos from the from a frontal perspective only, like so that everything is flat. I almost mm-hmm. hate it when things in my photos have perspective. Like parallel to the vertical, like so you, you don't 
lean it lean it forward or lean it back yeah and i and when i'm in a room and i want to take a picture i i want to straighten myself out so everything like i want to go 360 wall to wall so all the objects you only see the very front of them right see anything else um so and this segues nicely into my next question which was as you know i'm a painting nerd and and I'll talk about any kind of art, but especially painting. And I'd love to know more, like the the deep dive into your process because uh, you you do collage. So I'd love to know, like, how are you? What are you collaging? What are you choosing to collaging? Love to know your glue. Um. Also, um. Let me see. Uh, I noticed that you're using oil a little bit in this show, so I wanted to know if that was a newer medium for you or if you're just kind of going back to something you used to. And also, um, what kind of sketches do you do first? Do you sketch out in pencil or do you just kind of get in there? Okay, uh, just so take me, take me through it. Let's see. Let me start with the glue. So I use, I have used for many years something called Yes Glue. And to yes, be honest, I've just started trying the Yes okay, Glue. Okay, well, be careful. It's a tricky okay. glue. It's caused me some trouble. Um, where work paper on my paintings has lifted and I've had to have, you know, I either repair oh, really? it or, so, but I started using that glue okay. because I was, um, sort of the quasi artist assistant. And also I was the art handler at Sycamore Jenkins when I was like, you know, really young, I think like mm-hmm. 21 to 25, 26, right before I went to grad school. And one of their artists is Arturo Herrera, who is a um, he's well known for the collages he makes, and he was using in his studio Yes Glue. So I was like, "Oh, okay. this is even extra glue TM talk." Well, glue so talk that's TM. how I got to the Yes Glue. But now <laughs> I'm trying to use Yes Glue. Is so flexible. The thing I love about it is you can, when you make a mistake, and you can just wet the um, thing that you put down, and the Yes Glue will lift, which may be why it causes some trouble oh. with humidity. And it's also the kind of glue where you can work with it and it doesn't dry very fast. So no, I it doesn't. It's And it's very like paste-like, but like super sticky. Like if you get it on your hands, yeah. forget it. You're in trouble. Yeah, it's, it's very – and what I do is I, I – when I paint my collage paper, I paint with acrylics. So I started using like – when I first started, I used very crappy acrylics, like Liquitex basic acrylic. And now you make I, your own you make your own yeah. collage paper, so like in a Matissean fashion. Right. You don't so use now, ephemera or anything. Now that I'm, a, you know, a little more able, I, I use golden acrylic. I usually use even fluid acrylic because it's easier to paint. I use very inexpensive paper. I paint the, if I need a color, I paint it. But the, the, so the, the collage paper on top of the painting, this gets tricky because I have to be very careful when I collage it not to get too much on the gouache, which then needs to be touched up. But with the acrylic paint on the, as collage paper, I can wipe off the glue and clean it all up. That's what's so great about Yes Glue. I've been advised now that I'm the work has had some trouble with aging and I've had to repair or collectors have to repair it. Um, I use um, something. Um, it's a book binding glue. I don't. I just, it's new, really new to me. It's by Leneco. You can buy it at Blick. It's a nat, a neutral pH adhesive glue. Um, it's oh, yes, not I as, think Jim Gaylord uses that. Glue. Probably he does, and it's really not as flexible. And I'm struggling with it a bit like okay. I I have a little trouble working with it but I'm when I feel like I know exactly where this thing is going and I'm not going to make a mistake I use that glue or if if it's just one or two things I'm collaging in the painting I will use that glue but I'm more comfortable with the yes glue and then um how like what percentage of each piece is collage like versus painting so that's that's the other part of this so what happened initially is I was working really with just gouache and making paintings that were just paint 
And on the, and then I started thinking about wanting to make collage and I made pieces that were all collage. So they were all painted paper and collage. So the picture was created solely from paper. And then like, uh, you know, things started to seem like, oh, well, I could, I could actually combine these. I could, some of my paintings could be collage. It seemed like a, to me at the moment when I, I did it, I think it was like 2000, oh, let's see, 10, 11, maybe 2000, but somewhere between 2010 and 2013, I started doing this where I add, started adding some collage to my paintings. And that was only just like one or two things. There would be like mm. the main object in, the, in a painting called Jean's Vision about a, a, a friend of my mom who believes she saw visions of Mary and her, oh. all her living room was blue and she had this blue, blue and white Christmas tree. So in that painting, the Christmas tree is central and it's made of paper, but the rest of the painting is just painted. Um, but of course, like anything, as an artist, you start getting into it, you start really grooving on it. And then my paintings over time became more paper than paint. So the, the, a show I had in 2019 at Tibor Denage, before this one, the paintings were almost all paper. Like there was the, only the underneath, only the, the architectural structure of the painting was painted. And then everything else was built with paper. It's kind of... um. Kind of like a, I kind of let the the body of work talk to me, um, and I also get frustrated with just using paper. So for this show, my more recent show, I was kind of over it, and I really wanted to just paint. So that's why there's less collage in this show. I was doing something different. I was interested in mark making, and you you mentioned the oil and gouache, and you had oh, mentioned yeah. how, how do you talk... make that work? Well, here's the funny thing about that. It's like all things that have happened in my career as a painter. I just Someone, a good friend of mine in Yale grad school, who was a really phenomenal painter, like there were some really good painters in my program, like people who painted like the Renaissance and <laughs> they really knew what they were doing and they knew about mediums and how to mix. And I asked them, like, I want to kind of learn how to oil paint. And I, I did actually oil paint um, my last semester at Yale. They weren't very good, but they, I tried. Um, but he told me as he saw me struggling, you know, Anne, you can just you can paint oil over gouache. And I was like, really? Um, and I believe he told me that Sienese painters do this. And I can't actually say that I ever verified that. But um, Oh, so when you say, because I assumed you were doing gouache on the collage papers and then gluing those down on top of the oil, but you're saying no. you're actually gouaching no. on top of the oil. Okay, so I'm I'm painting oil on top of the gouache, no collage. Oh, okay. So okay. some parts of these paintings in my show, Cooler by the Lake, there are areas like the cat in backyard garden, my cat Jack, who's sort of lording over the garden and kind of breaking the frame looking at you. He's done in oil. And as is the, um, what's that candle called? I just, just. Oh, like a citronella. A citronella, citronella. candle yeah. candle is also painted in oil. And I think the table, so things that are in the foreground in Cooler by the Lake, sometimes they're, I don't think there's very much oil in that show, but. Oh, and in Eastview Park, I did all the snow and oil because I've learned that some areas of the painting, I really want to have a more fluid feeling. And that's when I turn to oil. But this painter in my program told me this is a very, this is a very like old technique. You can totally do it. And it will make, I remember him telling me it will make the gouache in some areas just sparkle. Um, oh, wow. And I, I liked that idea, but I didn't, I've only done it a few times over the past you know, like the decade of exhibitions I've had, bodies of work I've made. I, I did it for an exhibition in 2010. I did a couple paintings with a lot of gouache and, and oil combined. And 
then I really didn't do it much after that. And I revisited that for the show. Well, also, like, I feel like you're a water-based painter at heart, possibly. And, 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 and it's, 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 it's hard for somebody like for me, I'm, I got into the oil paint. And so it's hard for me to switch over to the water base. I mean, I'm giving it my college try. It's Your brain paint. gets wired, you know, for a certain one, I think. I'm just super comfortable in gouache. And I think really it goes back to my beginnings as a painter of needing to be, of not totally understanding how the mediums in oil paint work and like just the wetness of oil. Mm-hmm. really confused me early on. Like I, my painting staying wet for a long period of time was not something I was super adept at. Like I would mess things up or smear them. And I've said, I've said a couple times, and I, I, I hold myself to this, that I really don't necessarily paint. I actually construct my paintings. And now that I'm kind of touching on oil again, I, I get this kind of painter um you know, I can see why oil paint is so fun to use. And I, I, see, I do see in the future using it more. Um, yeah, so luscious. I know. How that will change my work, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> you never um, know. For the worse, for the better, who knows? <laughs> I'm sure for the better. But, but uh, so when you start out with your image, do you do a, a detailed sketch? Because you have such, so much information going on in the scene. I imagine you must have to do some planning. I mean, my, my paintings, this is one thing I've been um, assessing now, um, this far into it is my paintings are incredibly painful to begin. Um, I do do sketch, I do sketches and I have the architectural layout drawing. And with that drawing, I'll transfer the architecture to the panel. I fill all the color in like, I, or at least the base. I change a lot of stuff as I go because, you know, the painting starts to talk to you, but mm-hmm. I get all the colors of the architecture laid in. And then I use that architectural drawing to carefully construct the objects in the room. And then I trace all those objects onto my panel and start filling them in with paint. Or if I'm going to collage, I cut all those objects out from paper. And I, I mean, I think if you look closely at my work, you'll see it's not like the objects are detailed. They're actually all super simplified and they're all this sort of like stylized version of what they might be in a room. They're like a lot of the details are not there. Um, you know, I try to make things easy on myself by creating these very geometric objects that, that like a chair that might have a more ornate sort of like, you know, uh, like sometimes dining room chairs have a lot of like rounded edges and carvings and things. A lot of times I'll just take all that out, but I'll just get the general shape. Um, right. Like a lampshade, you'll do a very simplified, like red shape, like in fireworks and sunset and yeah. Um, also, it's a very collagist eye to do that, which I love. I'm I'm very a team collage. <laughs> I mean, no, your collages are amazing. Um, well, I, I also just love talking about collage. I I, I kind of geek out a little too much, and I'm like, is the audience even wanting to hear about all this glue as much as me? And like, I really want to hear about. Well, this. I mean, I think collage just <laughs> offers this whole other world of how to represent. And so for me, it it I thought it would actually really simplify my work on a certain level, and in a way, it does because like, I don't have to deal with the way the paint is going on to the surface. Like, you know, you have to right. build the layers. Um, you know, it really is like I made the decision and now I just have to cut it out and get it glued on in the right place. But to go back to the sketches, like everything I am drawing requires measurement and plotting and planning, like how big it's going to be. I mean, over the, if you look at the span of my work, I would love to do a monograph just so I could see like all of the funny scale shifts I do in my work that are maybe a little bit off, like 
a chair might be kind of too small or like a chair might be kind of too big. But, you know, because of the work I put into it, and this is something you even tell art students when you're working with them is like, don't be too you know, married to that a precious, you might, to, yeah. you might have to change it. Well, my objects are so precious. I will not change them. Right. Like if the scale is wrong, a lot of times I'm just like, well, so be it. That's what it's going to be. Well, you cause know? you have to let a little humanity in. I mean, it's a human endeavor, you know, but you're yeah, not a lot machine. Of measuring and, you know, little incremental, you know, the, the, um, I'm looking at some paintings in my studio, just like carefully cutting all the floorboards, you know, one quarter inch, you know, strips on a cutting board or like cutting out all the doors, making sure like the the side with the doorknob is the same size as the side where the hinges are and thinking, is that going to be a half an inch or three eighths? You know, I just, I'm always looking at my ruler. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very like intricate, um, analytical, painstaking kind of patterning impulse. And I, uh, in the past, I've made very, very hyper detailed drawings. And there's some kind of, you almost go into a meditative state in a way, kind of in this like repetitive way, creating this thing. And then at the end, the thing comes to life. But in the in the midst of it, it's all these little actions. I mean, that is a great way to describe how I feel like the arc of my paintings go is that I set up this incredible, like, project and puzzle to to bring it to make it all click together and i really don't get to like the the euphoria of a painting or the, like the thrill of no, it no no not until the end until the end <laughs> i'm looking at some work in my studio where i made this crazy wallpaper and i remember just and i'm doing it right now i'm already doing it with this other body of work i'm working on where i'm just sitting listening to podcast mm -hmm. or music or a book on tape and mindlessly repetitively painting a pattern and and, you know, I, I, I actually question that some, like, what is it doing to my brain all these years of like sitting for so many hours and filling in pattern? Um, I think it's like meditative. I don't. And also, I think sometimes we're trained as art students that detail is uncool. Um, and so we have that kind of feeling, um, oh, I should be gestural. I should be fresh. You know? I have always bucked that. Like, I never, I mean, I was surprised. At, I mean, I really thought like Mel Bachner would tell me to stop it. Like, what are you doing? This is horrible. He was actually pretty supportive. And so was Peter Haley, like these, you know, artists that had, you know, the stature and they, you know, Peter Haley makes these big abstractions using just color and texture. And it's none of it's about decorative. I mean, I guess in a way, maybe I take that back. But, but there's something about like, yeah, this just this almost like that writer, I forget, it's a famous writer who said, I don't like uh, writing, but I love having written. That's how I kind of felt. I mean, there was something relaxing and meditative about making the small marks and find yeah. and having it blossom at the end into its own living being. But but it's something about like, sometimes working on it wasn't, you know, you didn't feel like you were Jackson Pollock spraying things and you know, I mean, taking a drag off your cigarette and I just, you're, you're I just, just love the way hunched over a table. <laughs> I don't know. I, I just, you know, I, didn't, I grew, I guess I grew up with enough pattern. I don't even know. I just find it very comforting. And I, yeah. also, I really like how it busies up. the. I, I like the busyness of it. Yeah. And, because um, there's so many, there's such like a, like people out there in art school, especially like don't, uh, what do they use? They use a pejorative term. It's not busy. 
but it's something like fussy. They love to say fussy yeah, I always, as this, the worst possible thing you could be. And I feel like it's a little anti-feminist because, you know, women traditionally have made patterned works and quote unquote fussy detailed works. And it's kind of like, why is that bad? I'm questioning that. I don't know. You know, I never cared. I just thought, you know, screw it. You know, I, but I mean, I, I think now that I'm, I think I'm, I'm, I'm seeing myself more as a painter. I, I do feel like maybe it's making, I mean, I teach off and on and I, I actually always embrace the busyness of my students painting. So maybe they like having me as a teacher, but um, I do feel like when I teach painting, I'm suddenly starting to do that same thing. Like, Oh, make it less fussy. Right. Know, just get to the bare. I mean, because it actually does get to the essential part of it does it does do something different in a painting when you don't have all this busyness. And I, I always wonder, like, if I teach, am I going to become a different painter? Like, is this going to screw up my sort of naivete about pattern and decoration that I've always just been like, I love this stuff and I'm just going to keep doing it. I mean, I've had my work described as annoying, which I'm fine with. Um, oh, like, well, who like, do I need to punch? But like annoying as a compliment, kind of. Like it was like almost like a, it was almost like they were saying your work is kind of annoying, but I, I still want to look at it. Um, oh, oh. <laughs> so I mean, that's like, but like that, those kinds of words are what decorative bring up. Or, yeah. Or, or they, or they make people feel like it's less, um, I don't know, intelligent, academic. Yes, I mean, yes. And that's all like misogynist. That. It's misogyny um, in my opinion. Yeah. I just. My husband likes my work, so that makes me feel good. Like, he, he likes all the pattern. He lets me do our house that way, too. Like, our house is a total chaos. Um, I put tons of patterns everywhere. I, I have not wallpapered yet because I just really don't know how. So you are creating the embarrassing house that you, you were worried about as a child. Oh, <laughs> Your totally. mom was creating. You're creating oh, no, that, totally. yeah. Well, I think that's good. I think we should all have more embarrassing houses. I don't know. Pattern and decoration. I just... I just can't stop myself. I really, I really love kind of the, I guess in a way, maybe it's the enjoyment of labor. I really do like to labor over my paintings and I, I kind of want to give some of that up. I kind of want to say, let me be more free and fluid in these works, but then it just doesn't feel to me like I, I like, I did the, ba I did battle with the painting if I didn't do this certain amount of labor to, to bring it around the corner. Yeah. Like you, well, I think you're trying to, you're trying to encourage long looking, which is part of the pattern decoration movements goal too. It's like, you're not looking for a quick read. Mm. I do think that that time invested in a work will translate to time viewing in my, I do think so. Like if you, you can sense the artist's time. Yeah. And I also like, I encourage people who have the tendencies that I have to just, go for it. I mean, I don't know what gave me the confidence to do it. I don't consider myself a super confident artist where I'm like, oh, I'm just going to do whatever I want. I just, I felt like I, maybe along the way, I just never got it. Like I just, when people were trying to tell me do something different, I just didn't hear it or something. Cause I just kept barreling down this road where I was, you know, I didn't really shift my work that much in grad school, I kind of tried at the very end, which was when I probably made my worst work, which everybody does. And then I immediately rubber banded back to who I was. Once I was out of that situation, I was like, oh no, that's not the way. It always happens that way. Like, that was so crazy. <laughs> like you feel like, okay, I'm going to be crazy. And then you're like, 
I'm just going to go back to the real me. No. And I've even done things where I I did a couple – I did a show where I made these really big collages. Um, I had this opportunity here in Chicago where they did these 12 by 12 spaces where they give you the space and they say, do whatever you want in it. And there's, so there's no – like there was no pressure in any way commercially or anything. I wasn't trying to – I was pretty young as an artist, like coming you – know, like very beginning of my career. So I, you definitely feel the pressure with a gallery to sort of say – I don't want to give you something that you're just going to be like, what am I going to do with this? Um, or at least I did. And this show, I really made these, I really, I guess, I just let myself make these giant collages. And they really opened some abstraction up in my work. But I, I became afraid. I was like, I don't want to go into abstraction. I don't want to go to, in that direction. I, after that show, I, I did a, a totally different kind of show where I, I really went crafty. I added all kinds of like I did flocking in my work, I had yarn in my work, I, I, did, I did almost the exact opposite of what that show sort of was telling me, oh, you could, go, you could go this direction. And I was like, no way, I'm not doing that. Yeah, well, the flocking sounds like a, like a nostal- like serious deep nostalgia, which I, I love too. Sometimes in your work, I'll see like a Raggedy Ann vase or a vintage video game. Um, there's a painting called Pitfall with a guy like trying to avoid some alligators in an old fashioned Atari like video game. And um, the, the nostalgia is an interesting part of your work for me. Yeah. I mean, I'm, that's actually, uh, that painting is probably the painting that's going to, will be, is like the, uh, what do you call it? The pilot piece for this next show that I want to do. What I do is I allow, I allow my personal life to influence the work. So I kind of go with whatever moment is happening for me right now, I, I look I look around and say that's how Cooler by the Lake got done. And then now I'm I'm raising um, a girl and a kid, uh, they them, and um, I'm in this moment where I'm I'm battling this wasting time. Like why are yes. you wasting your time? Stop wasting <laughs> your time. Will you read a book, please? I feel like I'm on repeat, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm in this moment where my kids are no longer listening to me, and they don't want to do any of the things I want them to do that I think are valuable. They just want to look at their screens, talk to their friends and, you know, play Roblox or whatever. Um, so I'm sort of now looking back at myself saying, well, I wasted so much time. I talk on the oh, phone. Oh yeah. We all, I watch soap terrible. operas. I oh, played yeah. pitfall. Um, you know, I was a pitfall high score. Uh, so I think that I, was like Mario three. Yeah, I mean, I think Pitfall, I was pretty young when I played Pitfall, I was like nine. But so I'm just going back to this moment where I'm remembering what it was like to feel like time didn't matter and you could just waste time. And why were your parents constantly egging you on to like do something with, that seemed, you know, worthwhile? And look, um, I sometimes I like point to ourselves. I'm like, I squandered my entire childhood and I became a fine artist. I mean, that's like, like a high cultural role. You know, and so like, so my kids playing video games all the time. I'm like, well, you never know. You might become, maybe he'll become a poet right. or something. Yeah. <laughs> but so that's how the nostalgia plays into the work. Cause I just really allow myself to look backwards. Cause I feel like as an artist, that's really what I have to offer. Like, you know, and I always feel when I do something a little out of the, the, the context of some, of a, a personal connection the work falls a little flat. It doesn't have the same, you know, emotional feeling or just, you know, the strangeness that comes from, you know, dealing with memory and just dealing with, you know, 
I don't know. I, I, I guess I don't really know how to describe it. But well, I, I do feel like like when I see like for example, I think that's true for still life. Like you got to stack your deck. Like if you do something, if you do a personal object, that's going to have so much more emotional resonance than like an apple. Yeah, and, and I exactly. think in a similar you, way, you're painting still life in a lot of ways, and so you you're looking for that emotional resonance built in. And I've tried different versions of you know I've done. So the work evolved, it has just kept shifting and changing. Like, how do I get the subject matter? You know, um, how do you keep this going? And so after I did a bunch of work that was from memory and really about the space of the, some of the spaces of my childhood, I actually started going outside of that and asking other people to give me their memories and draw up a room that they remembered from, you know, their childhood. Or they, what, it, what was your mother's kitchen like? I did a, the show at the MCA with the big collages was all about my mother and my mother, I have two mother-in-laws describing for me the kitchens of their mothers because their mothers were like 1930s, 40s, you know, oh, back wow. when, well, when women were really defined by their role oh, in the yeah, household. Yeah. Like, I really, so there's, a, you know, I'm always looking for this hook in the work. How can I make a series of work that will give me enough material that I can build these interiors? And so now I'm, since I did Cooler by the Lake and I really allowed myself to be in my more present past, I wanted to look at, you know, this thing of raising kids in this age of the screen and say, well, what, what did I do as a teenager? Like, what, what was I, what was I spending my time doing? I was lying around watching Days of Our Lives and Santa of Barbara. <laughs> of course. I look now. Yeah. Like we became painters. It's fine. I just feel like sometimes like, you know, we, I, I always sweat the small stuff. I always sweat the small stuff and I'm just like, I'm a terrible mother. But then I'm just like, you know what? Like he's going to be fine. You know, he'll be fine. Well, um, but at you, this... So once you do that, then I can go back and look at that room where I played pitfall. And then it's like this fun game of remembering the color of the carpet and what were the walls. And I might even have my mom send me a couple old fading photographs from that time so that I can kind of check my memory to the photo. And so it's like it becomes a game of composition and puzzle. And I never just use one photo or one, you know, I guess one point in time. I try to remember it like in layers. So I'm like, you know, so the show will have those rooms over like a course of maybe five or six years. Like there were different colors, there were different objects. Um, I don't know. And you like stack your deck. And and this is interesting too, because in the past, um, I think in 2018, you had a really cool project where you, I think, well, I was going to segue because, you know, I heard a comedian refer to the pandemic as the pandemic which I find really funny. I think it was Aparna Nanchala. I don't know if I'm saying that name right. But okay, so in the pandemic, um, you know, we were all housebound a lot. Um, we're stuck in our houses. And you had a project where you cobbled together rooms from your friend's Facebook posts, which I find delightful, a delightful thought experiment. And I wanted to hear more about that. I, and I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure, like, if you go to Anne's website, it's antebbe.com, T-O-E-B-B-E. I'll link it in the show notes, of course, but um, I'm pretty sure they were called like friend colon. Is that right? Like friend colon. Yeah, so Becky, the show, it's really friend easy. colon my, Jana. Yeah, on my website, I, you look under exhibitions and it says friends and rentals. So I did a show. Okay. The work was mostly made in 2018 and some of it was in 2019. So then I had a show called Friends and Rentals, which was friends are the people that I, I kind of stalked on Facebook. And you, you know, I found out on Facebook, you can just drag and collect anybody's photos you want into your computer files. Like I had all these files, like it ended up being 
more of a overview of, I have a large Catholic family that lives in Southern Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky. And I followed all my cousins. I have 40 and they, there were some that were real oversharers. Like they really shared a lot about. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Usually it had to do with a baby shower, Christmas, or like a gathering for Easter. It all kind of revolved around my being Catholic. I am not Catholic, but I kind of liked that thread. So I used the friends are mostly my cousins or my aunts, friend Sandy, friend Jaina, friend uh, Becky. And then I did one called friend, uh, friends, Lisa and Tim. And that's actually Lisa Sanditz and Tim Davis, who oh yes, I knew them in New York as a very young artist. They were kind of a little ahead of me and getting established ahead of me. And then I would watch, I would look at their posts on Facebook and I would think, wow, they really seem to have landed like this dream artist life where you live in upstate New York. And right. You... It does look very dreamy from so afar. So use Facebook to say like, okay, this is the place where I come from. These are like houses that my family members live in. And then this is this other house that I think is the life I could have had if I, if I didn't make some of the choices that I made. And so there's always a lot that goes into why I make a painting. Um, like a longing in a way. Yeah. And, uh, sometimes it can be judgmental. Like, oh, look at these houses in the Midwest. Aren't they boring? Yet they're not. They were so full of these amazing, like, quirks. And my the friend Jaina painting I especially love. She had that, she had some really interesting wallpaper in her kitchen, or has, I think. I think it's the same house that she still lives in. And how would you, you'd have to kind of cobble together a floor plan-ish yeah, I would I would collect and collect and I'd figure out, okay, I have about 12 or 15 photos. I think I can figure out where the living room is, the dining room. <laughs> I can kind of, based on my knowledge of some of the floor plans of these types of houses, I can figure out maybe where the doorways might connect. And then I would lay the photos out on the floor and then create a drawing from them. And I was really shocked at how much detail I could get. Um, in the yeah, but I love the idea of using social media like that. And, and um, one time I was at a dinner and I was seated next to an architect and I was telling him about how my son and I had just explored this abandoned house and I probably shouldn't have brought my six-year-old in there but anyway blah 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 water under the bridge (laughs) but he said that his dad used to make them drive around to houses and they'd park outside and his dad would be like go and they'd have to draw their imagined floor plan from just looking at the outside of the house, what they thought okay. the inside was like. I love and that. sometimes when I hear about your project on fa- the Facebook project, it reminds me of that, where you're like, here's four snapshots, go make, recreate the room. Well, it was also just this interesting reveal that people are sharing so much about them. And actually, shortly after that, I didn't, I got off Facebook. I, I don't really use Facebook anymore. It was also partly political. I just felt like, oh, it was, you know, very toxic um in a way and so yeah it got bad self-conscious like (laughs) I realized how much I'd put of my personal self there after I did this project and it kind of rattled me a little bit I I never deleted my account it's still there for anybody to look at and it's not like necessarily that private but I haven't added to it in many years um I just use Instagram which I found even though you do personal stuff on Instagram I felt like it mainly was pictures and they I didn't get as deeply involved in my personal life on Instagram as I did on Facebook. Yeah, there's something because it's less text based. 
Um, yeah, and it's, I feel like I do more artwork and just like funny life shots. And sometimes I sprinkle my kids in there because, of course, I can't help it. But um, I do less of that than I did on Facebook. Um, yeah. It could also just be the time uh, that I used Facebook when they were young and now they're, they're not so young. Anymore. Right, like because the family wants to see their photos and stuff. But right. yeah, during, during the elections, it was really tough to be on there because yeah, I have family that doesn't share my political beliefs. So it was a little bit tricky to be on there. It's just toxic, like you said. I had actually many battles on Facebook. I yeah. Think. Oh, God. Anyway. Like, so that, that project kind yeah. of came at the tail end of my Facebook time. And, and it was like after that toxic moment. And then I just realized like this platform is so interesting. It, people are just sharing their personal spaces for, and it, what, literally what it was is like, if you take a photo of yourself in your house, if I just kind of look, start looking around what's behind you, I can start to figure out what's in your room, you know, what kind of table you have, what color your wall is, how many plants you have, you know, what your knickknacks are, you know, you know, I, I really enjoyed making those paintings. Um, they were very hard to make. They, they really were probably some of my more rigorous recent work. Yeah, I, I love the whole um, conceptual trappings of it, too. The, like, being stuck at home, trying to recreate. Because you can't visit a friend anymore. You know, you're stuck. And so well, the fact that you were kind of virtually visiting a friend. I mean, it was before the pandemic, your, this body of work. But it has resonance right now for me because I'm like, I can't go to my friend's house. I got, But, like, it's something poignant about trying to recreate my friend's house from photos they posted online. I think for me, it was also just this idea that I've never been to, it was one of the sh the first shows I'd made where it was all spaces I'd never been in. Like I, except for the, re the rentals were different. The rentals were actually too quirky. It was like also thinking about this idea of we, now we're all into renting spaces that people are like multi-use spaces and like multiple people have slept in this bed. Everybody uses these forks and spoons. And I was just thinking, oh, this is kind of gross and weird, but yet. Oh, like an Airbnb? Like Airbnb and Verbo. Yeah. That was the other side of the show. Yeah, Verbo. It like, was like, oh my gosh, how gross. But, but I've, yeah, I've definitely poured over Verbo. Because like if you're you're fantasizing about a vacation, especially if you're in the dead of winter, um, which is, is one of the downsides about upstate New York in case you need, need that ammo, um, it's pitch dark here all the time. <laughs> But anyway, um, so you're like, you're like fantasizing about maybe taking a vacation. So you're just on Verbo like, oh, okay, let me look at these seven photos and imagine myself, you know, uh, with the seashell, the seashell art and the, and the sun, you know, the starfish uh, hung all over the wall. That's where I want to be. And you try to recreate the house and imagine yourself there. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit of an escapism too. And that's an interesting point because one thing I would not do is go on Verbo and do a, pro like for the Facebook post they were they had I had to have that personal connection it was my cousin when I saw the people in the photo I was like oh yeah there's my cousin Susan in her kitchen you know um and for the two rentals it wasn't spaces that I just looked at online it was spaces we actually ended up going to mm. and kind of and being in that space and kind of experiencing the actual its actual physicalness um but the so quirky that, the quirkiness is Oh, sorry to interrupt oh, you. Oh, no, but sorry, I cut you off. I, it just occurred to me that the quirkiness of those spaces, like you said, everybody slept in those beds and all those different spoons. One time I was Zooming with a, a panel and one person was at an Airbnb in Cape Cod and they were, it looked like the, the is it the Royal Tannenbaums movie where it's like a certain stylized cinematography. The person was like in a knit beanie uh, sitting in front of a mantle that had all these like whale and like seafaring artifacts like hung up above the mantle and the wall was powder blue 
And I was just like, oh, man, I want to see more of that house. I mean, that was kind of the point of those paintings, too. Is these people are trying to charm you and it ends up being so over the top. Um, yeah, but it's, funny. yeah, the kitsch, the kitsch can be charming, too. Okay, so I wanted to segue a bit into dollhouses because when I look at your cutaways, the cutaways of rooms, it has a strong dollhouse vibe to me. And there's a really cool history of dollhouses in art that I wasn't aware of until I was kind of Googling it recently. Um, but the ones I wanted to mention just real quick was the Judy Chicago and Miriam Shapiro's woman house where Miriam Shapiro made a dollhouse. And it's, I want to compare it a little bit to your painting, North Side, South Side, because in North Side, South Side, your painting, you see a cutaway of a house and you see the biggest room in the house. And in fact, the only room you are privy to is the art studio. And you as like a woman artist, a mother artist, you've featured your studio, your art studio as the most important room in the house. And in Miriam Shapiro's dollhouse, she similarly has the kitchen is empty. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she has the nursery, but in the bassinet is like this terrifying monster mask. And then, <laughs> I don't and then her, oh and then the studio's the biggest room, and she's got her husband posing nude <laughs> for her painting. And it was just, it struck me as a similarity because it was you were both women artists displaying your home, but using using your studio as the most prominent most important part of the house. And I thought that was a powerful thing. Well, I do have to say that my studio is not in my house. It um, is a separate building. Oh, okay. Um, only five minutes from my house. So very close. So that was, that's a very, that part of this, um, that painting was this idea that my studio is very close to where we swim at um, Promontory Point in Lake Michigan. And, um, what I wanted to do was I wanted to cut the studio up in the center of the painting, the building that I, it's, it's, the building is the same as my, my condo building. It's just that my studio is in a building that's like on the east side of Eastview Park and I live on the west side. But I wanted the studio to be kind of like the building to be cutting into the, the two sides of the lake because the lake is very much driven by the wind. So if the wind is very kicked up on the north side, then one side, the north side would like in that painting. Right. Cool. And you're painting like it's bis it's like bisected. So there's like wavy part right. of the lake and then calm part so of the lake. So kind of the, the idea was the, the building was it's like the two sides of my mental state. Like the north side is very kicked up and the south side is very calm. And this is sort of the, always the struggle with and, and I like that you bring up this idea of being a, a woman artist and being a parent is that there is always and I think that but I don't think it's not true for male artists either who are parents. Um, You know, I'm always pulled between you know what I need to do as a, like a regular person and then what I need to do as an artist and also in the studio I'm also fighting myself in there too as to like what I what I'm trying to do what's working you know it's all about these mental states as an artist you know so it's in my neighborhood it's in this place that I spend a lot of time with my kids uh, at Promontory Point swimming and you know my youngest daughter only wants to ever swim on the north side. So it really becomes angry if we have to swim on the south side, like if the wind is causing trouble. And I feel, I feel like that was like a metaphor for life. Like you want things to be a certain way. It's supposed to work, but, you know, it doesn't always, it's not always like that. You know, you have to just kind of roll with the punches. You have to swim where you can swim, you know? Right, right. Um, and so the south side is the wavy side. The south side is the calm side. Oh, the calm side. Yeah. 
I guess only really I would know that from the picture because where my studio, if you look at my studio straight on, my building, the north side is to the left and the south side is to the right. That's very interesting. And I don't know if that answers your your connection to the Miriam Shapiro, Judy well, Chicago. I, I had more dollhouse anecdotes. I, I Well, like there were Lori Simmons' body of work in the mid-70s. It was interesting to me because of when you were talking about doing the Facebook kind of spy rooms um, she would set, like she said she likes setting up small rooms with dolls and it was a way for her to experience photography without taking her camera out to the street mm -hmm. um, so she could set up her own world right around her with ever without having to leave and I it really struck me as a similarity with your work too because you're kind of peering into your Facebook screen um, and exploring exploring houses other houses without really leaving your studio. It was a very interesting, and it just, again, this whole pandemic of being confined and stuck. Um, I found it pretty interesting that in the seventies to now it's still relevant. You know, I, you mentioned Lori Simmons yesterday and I thought I better look Lori Simmons up because it wasn't so familiar to me. And I have to say, I love the work. I was like, wow. I mean, you'd think I would have known about that, but you know, there's always holes in what you know and what you don't. And I am aware of Lori Simmons, but I had no idea the connection I had to those earlier bodies of work. And I'm now kind of very excited about it. I was like, I'm going to print some of these out. Or maybe I'm going to get a book or something. I got to take a look, you know. Well, her work, you know, evolved so much. But like there was that really early beginning work. I thought it yeah, had that no, fem feminist tone of like the dolls inside the home and feeling stuck. And she was probably, you know, stuck in her house with her kid. I don't know, but it just had that vibe of, stuck mothers <laughs> you know i've always really like i feel like with my work with mentioning miriam shapiro and Lord G chicago and this idea of the the monster and the, the cradle and you know i have thought a lot about feminism in my work and about this idea of my work being like feeling very made by a woman in a way and i i really embrace that and accept it i'm like i am a woman i make this kind of work i'm good with that and i i guess and I also feel like as a parent, um, I've come to the real, I've come to like the, I've landed where I feel like there are a lot of parents out there. We're all struggling with how we manage our lives and artists are also in that group. And, and it does seem to a lot of times fall on the woman to pick up a lot of the slack. And if that is tied into my work and it, and it influences my work, I'm totally fine with that. Like, I don't have to hide the fact that I do this amazing job as a mother. Nobody trained me to do it. No one told me how to do it. Nobody gives me any like pay raise if I do it well, or, you know. It's true. But I, if, Preach. It, if it influences <laughs> my work in any way, I feel like, you know what? The things we do in our lives influence our work. And I'm totally cool with being a parent and having that play a part in some of the subject matter of my work. You know, there's a, in my Cooler by the Lake show, I, I have a piece called Treasure Island. I would just, I really got to know this produce section at our local grocery store. And I always thought it was funny. It was called Treasure Island because I hate going to the grocery store. I um, love that it's called Treasure Island. <laughs> well, that's the grocery store. That was what it's called. It was so, <laughs> but I also decided very, you know, poignantly to say, I'm going to make it at the time when I would push my, my oldest daughter around in the cart you know, that's a very specific time in a parent's life where you cannot go to the grocery store without bringing this kid and they have to put them in the cart and they're always looking for you and you're always got the eye on them. And, um, and in that picture, the baby is looking right at me saying, you know, it's like, like, 
looking right at me, but also looking right at you, you know? Um, and I just thought that's such a weird thing to put in a painting, but I don't care. I'm putting it in. Yeah. And um, I wanted to talk to you about one, one thing I was curious about. You mentioned uh, this Nathaniel Hawthorne novel called The House of the Seven Gables. And I was very interested in that because it feels, you know, very much like the house as subject, because this house was passed down from generation to generation and kind of held this sort of like uh, almost a curse or something within it uh, through, you know, the people that came through it. And I was just interested because you had mentioned that in a CMA interview in 2020, that interviews at cmany.org. So I just wanted to know if you had any uh, thoughts about that or why you chose, why you choose the houses of subject or architecture. Well, you know, I went through a period where, you know, I really love reading novels and I, and I think the house of the seven gables was in the time when I was reading a lot of books about um, family homes that create those, that, that kind of, the dark secret, there's something, you know, and, and it, there's a cast of characters and it's always in these like usually kind of wealthy, you know, inherited properties. And there's some kind of like twist in the middle where you figure out somebody doing somebody wrong or, you know. Um, and I think what I, I don't remember, I was thinking after you asked me that yesterday, like I don't remember a lot of specifics of the book and I even pulled it off the shelf to flip through it. It was really what, what I remember about that book was just this idea that the house was sort of a, the, the facade was alive. It had this feeling of when you, when you were looking at it, it was like, it was almost like a living and breathing thing. Mm -hmm. And I loved that idea at the time because I felt like it related to what I wanted. I, I am not doing this in my work, but I think at the time I felt like that was something that I really wanted to bring to my work that, that I was putting my emotions in this work in order to try to bring them to life, even though I knew what I was doing was almost stripping the work of emotion in the way I create it, where it's, I almost take out the, the personal touches and, and make these more geometric like puzzles where I'm then just inventorying. Um, and at the time I, I went through a series, I, I read Effie Briest. Uh, we were watching a series on um, Netflix called The Buddenbrooks all related to that same thing of like this family home full of these heirlooms and, and things that have been handed down for, you know, centuries or maybe I don't know if centuries, but decades. And, and, and then somehow everybody's tied to that property and, and through that, the narrative unfolds. So I don't know. Yeah. It, he's an interesting author because the reason I mentioned it is because I recently read a short story of his and it was haunting. <laughs> so I can only imagine yeah. that the House of Seven Gables is equally so. But the one I read was called Rappuccini's Daughter. And oh, my God, this story is so crazy because it's like a mad scientist who invents this garden. And it's full of poisonous plants, poisonous flowers. And he has a daughter and he basically tampers with her so that she is living amongst these poisoned plants and breathing in the poison, but it's actually, she's actually adapted to it. And she considers one of the flowers, this purple flower as her sister, and she breathes in the poison that comes out of it. And this guy like stumbles in there one day and he's like, who's this beautiful girl? And of course, you know, he gets sick because it's all full of poison. So he tries to give her an antidote and ultimately she dies from the antidote. And so there have been like scholars like, what's the moral here? Because there's always a moral to Hawthorne's work. Um, and they're like, it's either don't play God or let people stay unique. 
I mean, I, I actually, I looked that up too after you mentioned it yesterday. I thought that's a story. I've... And I do love this idea of the, the girl becomes, you know, the plants, you know, and I think I could relate that to this idea of always loving Vuillard or, you know, the Nabis where the pattern, you know, everything in the picture starts. And I haven't really done it in my work yet. And I, maybe I will, but like where the, or if you read something like Ladies Paradise, where the, the, all the girls' skirts create this sea of pattern where you can't see the women anymore and everybody's just kind of becoming one, one pattern. And that's what happens in a Vuillard painting. Like there's figures and things happening, but the whole surface just becomes one thing. So I was thinking about that in terms of like this girl becoming the poison and then she becomes the plants. Like it's almost like they've become one thing. Yeah, she kind of like cradles and hugs the flower and the flower stands as tall as she does. And it's it's a very strange story. Anyway, her name's yeah, Beatrice. I, I mean, it's Beatrice a great, I mean, I love this. I mean, I almost want to I, I don't I always hate rereading a book, but maybe I will reread. I mean, you know, um, I always want to move forward. That's one thing I do in my work. I, I hate revisiting. I always want to go forward. Um, yeah, well, because, you know, that's the, the fun of painting is experimenting and seeing the next thing like that's why we do it you know it's like advanced level chess <laughs> um so i wanted to ask you a little bit about like leaving new york how how do you feel being an artist in living in chicago and if you could talk a bit about what it's like in chicago art wise and you know how you made that decision to move out well i did move here for a guy years ago <laughs> now my husband and we have two kids and i also have a wonderful stepson um i i moved here kind of at this moment in my life where i felt like i needed something really like um secure i guess maybe stable you know i'd lived in new york uh, as a younger artist and i'd always thought that i would just be like a starving artist living in sort of a dumpy apartment i'd have a day job and I'd be making my work. And, but then I kind of realized in my thirties, right around the time I met my husband, I also wanted a family and I, I couldn't like reconcile how those two things work together. So, um, my husband was based in Chicago. So I moved here. Um, how do I feel about it? I, I love Chicago. It was not an easy move in, in the beginning. Like any move is not easy. I've always sort of felt like if I'd stayed in New York and left grad school and moved with all my friends to New York and done the whole seen at the time when I had more like hunger for it, maybe I'd have something different in terms of a career. I'm not totally certain, maybe not. Um, but what I accept about Chicago is it allows me to pay a very low overhead. I've managed through like great effort and just, you know, not ever kind of letting myself just stop. I, I, that's my one flaw is I, I always am pushing to have a career in New York. And, and in terms of Chicago, the scene here is, is amazing. They, there's great galleries. I strangely have never quite found a home here. And I'm, I'm sort of figuring that out now. I, I am in some conversations, but um, the art scene is just so, I mean, like anywhere that's, that's not, doesn't have a centralized or more centralized art scene and art market. It's just more out you have to really make an effort to see shows there's not usually one big opening night sometimes there are but there are a ton of amazing artists here so i give chicago total credit for being a great place to be an artist and you can pay very low rent for your studio and if you i mean you know this amy like just have, living upstate now like you have to just 
stay involved. Like you can't allow yeah. yourself to get too far from it or it easily drifts away. Yes. Um, you know, and I really love being an artist. I love going to New York and seeing shows. I have, I really love the energy around it. Sometimes it drains me and I think, uh, you know, everyone goes through that where they see more shows or less shows, but you know, to anyone who's not living in New York, you can totally, you know, not live in New York and do it. You just, you have to have the, you have to want to have the hunger and you have to not get too, I feel like irritated by it. Like, yeah. You have to be willing to be irritating. slightly uncomfortable. Yeah, like I that's mean, the thing yeah. you have to, because it's like, it's uncomfortable to have to like haul your stuff in or, uh, you know, pound the pavement. Is yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's, it's slightly uncomfortable. It's just to be willing to be slightly uncomfortable. Yeah. But, and then I, it's know, possible. I, oh, and I, I, I think like everyone, I go through phases where I think I'm just not going to do this anymore. I'm going to be a dental hygienist. I mean, I really like things. <laughs> I really like my, I really like my teeth to be clean and I think I could do a really good job at other people's. But um, somehow I've just never made the move. Like I never, no. I, I never. <laughs> I can't see that happening. But I could also see that appealing. Like this, the detail, the detail work of cleaning <laughs> I, a tooth. <laughs> that would be very appealing. Um, well, Chicago mm-hmm. itself is like. I mean, maybe I. I just I love the idea of Chicago. I love that Chris Ware, the cartoonist, mm-hmm. came so from there. Good. I love all the images. Not yeah, a single one left out. Every single imagist I love. My favorite painting as a kid was a Jim Nutt that the New Orleans Museum of Art had purchased in the 70s. And I love Carrie James Marshall. And there's all kind of like everyone has like a very flattening cartoonist, like sectioning and patterning impulse. It feels very Chicago. And so that's I feel like your work. But I feel like your work really sits beautifully in that tradition because you also love that flattening cartoon with the figures um your new figures that you're including are are very flat and almost you know cartoon cartoon simplified um i don't know what is it about chicago that makes great painters (laughs) this is the thing listen i did not move here knowing the chicago images i basically i think i knew i don't know who who of those painters i knew now i'm like very immersed in them i think it's just by dumb luck that i and you know, Chicago's a super flat city on top of it. Like everything here is super flat. There's not a hill in sight. Um, and I think, you know, it being sort of the, you know, what do they call the second city? Everyone's got a chip on their shoulder. Yeah, a little, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, there's a bit of an academic strain here. There's a lot of artists that are yes. also academic. Yes, I get you know? that. Um, I get that sense. Yeah. So it, it's a really interesting scene. Uh, it's just as competitive and, you know, everybody's got you know everyone's feeling like they want to be great here just as like anywhere i think it's just the the way the art world works here we just don't have such a strong infrastructure like we don't have a strong criticism route where you even if you get a write-up for a show it doesn't seem to carry much weight i mean those are things that chicago suffers that i i have no um remedy for i i just i know i see great shows here i don't know how the shows what ripple effect they have for the artists outside of Chicago. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's a constant battle, but I also think it's unjust because there's some great stuff happening. I agree with that. I think it's very unjust. I think more people should come to Chicago for art. I think so. It's a great painter city. I mean, not to shade any wonderful sculptors in Chicago as well, but. Yeah, it seems like we have a, there was, there was a period where a lot of galleries did close the recession. When that was that 2000, when did we have that? Eight? nine was that where the big recession was like 2008 okay right right as obama was getting elected he came in and had to clean that all up 
that's when a lot of galleries here close. And since then, their their new galleries have definitely be, become more established. And you know, you do. I feel like there's a a good core group of them here that I'm able to see both Chicago-based artists and artists from even New York and other cities like LA. You know, people. Not that those are only three cities or whatever, but um, uh, I do feel like we we get enough here that it makes it feel vibrant in my mind. And there's a there's a great podcast if anyone's interested in the Chicago art scene called Bad at Sports, <laughs> and they're delightful. And they um they really they're kind of scrappy. And they talk about the Chicago art scene. And Anne has been a guest on their show, I think, in 2018. So uh, take if you're interested in Chicago art, um, take a look at them. Yeah, that's a great podcast. And then I wanted to ask Anne what she has coming up. Oh, Anne, would you tell us what you oh, have coming yeah, I do, up? Uh, I do have. So I have a, a survey show, but it's going to be in the University of Illinois in Springfield. That's opening in March. That's a small survey of work. So if you're in Springfield, Illinois. And then I'm starting work on a solo show for my gallery in Boston, Stevens Avitas, and that's going to open in September. Um, and I'm so great. We'll to link open. that in the show notes. I'm also supposed to open a drawing show at Jennifer Terzian Gallery in October, but I, I think at this moment I have to revisit that date. Um, is that gallery in Boston also? That gallery is in Litchfield, Connecticut. Jennifer okay. Terzian is a pretty interesting curator, uh, art consultant all around. She's been a friend of mine forever, and she just opened her own gallery where she lives in Litchfield, Connecticut. And she's showing the artist Polly Schindler right now. I don't know if you know. But anyway. But, oh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. The, the main thing I'm focusing on is my solo show, which will be opening in September in Boston. So I'm pretty excited about it. Um, just sort of starting that up now, trying to get the wheels turning. And you'll have new, new, a mix of new and, and work from T-Board and Naj or all, all new? new or, all oh, wow. New okay. Um, yeah. So. Okay. Like Pitfall is the prototype. Oh, exciting. I have a exciting. prototype for a show. I don't know. So you're going to um, be busy in your studio on the lake? Cooler by the lake. Yeah. So thank you so much. Is, was that all you have? Well, that's not, I don't mean that's all. That's a lot. <laughs> but did you have any other things you wanted to mention? Not, um, they're not, not that are solid enough to mention. So Okay. Okay. But those are, those are the things that are written in stone. Okay. Thank you very much. And um, with that, I'll just say thank you so much to our audience members and a very, very special thank you. Thank you so much, Anne Tubby, for joining me tonight. It was really, really a delight and a treat to talk to you about art and Chicago, parenthood and being an artist and all that good stuff. It was a wonderful evening. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I had such a great time. So with that, um, I will say good night. Yes, good night. And congrats on your show, Anne. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been Pep Talks for Artists. Thank you so much for listening. This is your host, Amy Toledo, signing off. In the meantime, please drop us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And find us on Instagram at Pep Talks for Artists. See you next time. Good night. Thank you.